So you find yourself at Acts 26, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Let the Lord be praised. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourselves. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. I therefore beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I've journeyed to Damascus with all authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone all around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you and your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. There was a world-famous violinist named Fritz Kreisler, born in 1875 and died in 1962. And he earned a fortune with his many concerts and compositions. And because he was an incredibly generous man, he gave most of that money away. So one day when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips across the country, 
he was unable to purchase it. Later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price, he returned quickly to the seller, hoping to purchase this beautiful instrument. But to his great dismay, it had been sold to a world-famous collector. Chrysler made his way to the new owner's house and offered to buy the violin from him. The collector said, I can't do that, Fritz. This is to become a prized possession for me, and I will not sell it. Chrysler was incredibly disappointed, and he was about to leave the man's home. But he had an idea. He said, could I play the instrument once more before it's consigned to silence in your collection? Permission was granted. And the great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were stirred deeply. He looked at Fritz and said, I have no right to keep this to myself. Take the violin. It's yours. And Chrysler took the violin into the world so that all the people could hear the beautiful music that came from it. Do we recognize that this is really the main purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not to keep to ourselves. It has the ability to deeply stir the emotions, deeply affect and elate the hearts of many, deeply stir our sentiments, and it has the ability to lead us to salvation. This morning, in the time that we have together, we're going to see that Paul takes a stand for his own defense. He also takes a stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ as he appeals once more to King Agrippa. Paul stands before King Agrippa as a Jew because of the promise given to him by God. He stands before King Agrippa as a Christian bringing light to both Jew and Gentile. And he stands before King Agrippa as God's servant boldly persuading all to become Christians through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. I ask that the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. For you are my Lord and my Redeemer. Bless us today. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's children said amen. We walk into this and we see that Paul has appealed to Caesar and has made it necessary for Festus to seek the advice of King Agrippa. He needs to seek the advice of King Agrippa because he needs to finish the report that he has to turn into the person who has authority over him, the emperor, before he sends Paul to Rome. Now we see King Agrippa as he takes charge of these proceedings. And he gives Paul the ability to speak. We know that Agrippa is one that has sufficient knowledge of all the Jewish customs and controversies. He's able to understand what is truly in dispute. He also has an awareness of this new sect called the Way, which is Christianity, because it came from Jewish roots. We see here 
that his knowledge is not like the knowledge of an outsider, not like someone that has just a professional interest in Judaism. He himself is a Jew. He, Agrippa, believes what the prophets have taught. He understands that there will one day be a Messiah that would fulfill the prophetic hope that they are looking for. He recognizes how important this is. So he can stand before Paul as a judge. There are two main things that Paul wants to get across. He wants to make sure, he wants to make sure it's clear that the main issue of this trial is the issue of the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he also wants to make sure that they understand that his purpose to be called to such a task is to be a witness for this Jesus Christ to both Jews and Greeks. So we see Agrippa. Verse 2, he gives Paul the permission to speak. Look at what Paul says. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Paul starts to explain the reason for his ministry. He seeks now to reason man to man with Agrippa and with this august body assembled before him. You've got civic leaders. You've got military authorities. This is a grand gallery for the grand finality of this trial. So we see, as he in verse 3 asks this of King Agrippa, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. He pleads with King Agrippa as a faithful and fellow Jew to listen to him as he tells him about his belief in the promise made by God. He stands before King Agrippa as a Jew because of the promise made to him by God. So now he gives his defense. It's a clear, compelling case that must be considered. He stands before him, and he starts with evidence, evidence from his past, and he tells him about his particular foundation that has been formed in all the manner of his life. Look at verse 4. My manner of life from youth spent from my beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He's now saying all of these Jews that are now accusing me, know, know, they know me from the beginning. They know how I have been faithful to the faith of Judaism. How I have been this way all of my life, even in my youth. They recognize my devotion. They knew of my dedication to God, but now something has changed, not my dedication, not my devotion, but my understanding of who the true one and living God is. He says, I've always had a good reputation 
before all of them for a long time. And he recognized that Agrippa could understand that he spoke boldly about his religion. He goes on to verse 5 and he says, They have known me for a long time. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He wants them to know that, hey, I'm not some liberal Jew. I'm not some Johnny come lately, but I belong to the strictest party of our religion. The one that follows the rules to the letter. My association has been with them throughout my whole youth. But now, King Agrippa, verse 6, I now stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. See, he's tapping into the fact that he believes what the prophets have said about the Messiah who is to come. He knows, he recognizes that there's a hope and a promise given to God that a Messiah would come and rescue them. He also lifts up the fact that his fellow Pharisees maybe didn't understand the complete ramifications of restoration. Uh, they understood that in this resurrection, the just and the unjust would rise but they haven't got to the part yet where they believe that that Messiah is Jesus Christ who would also rise. So Paul centered all of his claims around the scriptures and he pointed to the fact that the Messiah, the first to rise from the dead, that Jesus Christ was a promised Savior and King and that his message of light and forgiveness would be brought to his own people, the Jews, and also to Gentiles. Look at Acts 13, 28-34. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Speaking of Paul here again. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, no, we're speaking of Jesus here. And then he brings up the fact, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And will bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also as it is written in the second psalm you are my son today I have begotten you and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David you see, even though many oppose Paul's teaching about the resurrection, they oppose his teaching about Jesus and Jesus' offer of salvation. It was only because they misunderstood the scriptures. 
because in Old Testament, in Old and Jewish tradition, this hope for Israel was obvious. The uh, restoration of Israel was obvious. We even see it back in the book of Hosea. Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. You see, the prophet Hosea here is humbling himself to the understanding of the almighty God's discipline. Yes, he will tear us, but he will heal us. Yes, he will strike us down, but he will kill us and bind us back up and that he would raise us from the dead on the third day. He's contrasting here what will later happen in the New Testament when Jesus on that great getting up morning rises from the dead and is no longer in that tomb and it speaks to the promise that each and every one of us has that one day when we lie down, we will get back up because Jesus has gotten back up. I want you to look at Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, <coughs> they said, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesied and said to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold. Now when he says prophesied, preach to us, right? Therefore preach to us and said to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from the dead, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So don't tell me they didn't have a good understanding of the promise of God. These Jews were looking for the revival. And here they use this metaphor of a cemetery that seems to show their exile. But there's a fundamental lesson that Ezekiel is teaching here. And is that the only basis for their hope comes from the resurrection from the dead that only comes later from the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is establishing his reign as Messiah through resurrection power, and it is characterized by the gift of the gospel, which is eternal life, that we will all get up. And this is not merely a hope for an individual after death, but it's a hope for all of the Jewish people and later on all of the Gentiles 
who will come to Christ Jesus in faith. It's the same hope that you and I have. It's the same confidence that we live with, knowing because he has died, that we and we have been justified, that because we have died in a death like his, we will also be raised in a resurrection like his. A.B. Simpson is reported to have said once about the gospel. A.B. Simpson says, the gospel tells rebellious men that God wants to reconcile them, that his justice has been satisfied by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that their sins have been atoned for, and that the judgment can never, the judgment of not guilty can never be revoked because all sinners' debts who believe in Christ have been canceled. The curse of the law have been blotted out. The gates of hell have been closed. The portals of heaven have been opened wide. The power of sin has been defeated. The guilty conscience has been healed. The broken heart has been comforted. The sorrow and the misery of the fall in Genesis has been undone. And it's all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted his audience to hear this as well. He wanted them to understand. He wanted them to get it. That's why we see the passionate uh, intensity that he spends in preaching the gospel to those who are of his own lineage and those who are Gentiles as well. He says there that this promise is for all 12 tribes who are hoping to see it fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. This was a national hope that all Jews had. They wanted to see the reunification of God and themselves. So Paul explains that yes, now I serve God, the same true living God as a follower of the way. Because now I see that the hope that God has promised is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says here, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me, O king. He wants them to know. And then I want you to look at, just hear this rhetorical question that Paul asked in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Do you even believe in the God that you say you believe in? So why is it so out of sorts that God, if you have the same hope that I have, if you're seeking and waiting for the same promise that I have from God, then why is it that your belief finds it so unbelievable and so incredible that God could raise anyone from the dead. He's amazed by this. Look at Acts 17, 2 through 3. And Paul went in, as it 
was his custom on the three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 13. No, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You know, once a person acknowledges, admits that they serve an all-powerful God, then how could they ever find the idea of resurrection so incredible? Paul goes back in verse 9 and he says these words, I myself was convinced. Now when he says I was convinced, he's speaking of his past life as a Pharisee and a follower. And he says, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth includes for him attacking those who believed in Jesus, persecuting those who believed in Jesus, chasing after those who believed in Jesus. Look at Galatians 1, 13 through 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the trend, for the traditions of my father. He's telling us that he was all in when he was all in. And he found that if this Jesus of Nazareth was not a prophet but an imposter, that he had to set his life against him. Verse 10b says, on the authority of the chief priest, he did this and he did it up to the moment of his conversion. Look at Acts 9, 1 and 2. Now, but Saul, remember that was his name when he was Jewish, right? As you were, when he had not accepted Christ Jesus. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, so he says, if I found any Christians, okay, men or women, he might, bring, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then he, give us, he gives us greater insight on how he proceeded. Look at verse 11. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He said, I was rash. 
I was ruthless. I tried to make Christians recant what they said they believed. I tried to make them blaspheme the true and living God so that we could have more evidence against them to harm them. I tried everything. I was zealous. But when I came to Christ, I found out I was zealous without knowledge. That I was operating out of rage and not out of reason. He says, rage and fury against them as I persecuted them. And now he sees it didn't turn around fair play. Now he sees himself being pursued. He says, I pursued them even to foreign countries. And now in the passages that we've been through in the last couple of weeks, the Jews from Asia have come to Caesarea, have come to Jerusalem to persecute him. His whole life was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, has your life been truly changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? It requires a radical change. It requires leaving the old self behind. It requires dying that you might live. You know, the strongest argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ is the personal testimonies of people's lives who have lived uh, and had them changed by it. Charles Bradlaugh, an avowed atheist and infidel, once challenged the Reverend H.P. Hughes to a debate. The preacher was a head of a mission in London, England, and he accepted the challenge with one condition. He said, if I can bring a hundred men and women who would tell what happened to them in their lives since they started to trust Christ, I will debate you. And they, all the people I'm bringing are people who will be able to testify that they lived deep in sin and they had come from poverty-stricken homes, and they were raised by parents who had great vices. And he says they would not only tell of their conversion, but they would submit to any cross-examination that from anyone in the audience that doubted them. Then he told his opponent, I want you to invite a group of non-believers who can tell how they have been helped by their lack of faith in Jesus Christ. So the meeting was set. On the day of the appointment, the preacher came with a hundred witnesses. But Brad Law never showed up. There were another 150 that came to hear his side of the story. The meeting turned into a testimony time and many sinners that were gathered there were saved also, even though there was never any debate. You see where there's a test, there's always a testimony. If you will not stand for something, you will fall for anything. Paul understood this, and he stood as a Christian to bring both light to Jews and Gentiles. So now... 
Paul wants to bring light to Jews and Gentiles, and he's going to do it by going through his testimony. He wants to explain why he's changed from being a persecutor of Christians to a vigorous promoter of Christianity. How he was able to walk away from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. He wants to show people that such turning, such repentance involves a genuine turning around, turning away from your ways that were previously held you in sin. So he comes and he tells them about what happened to him on one of his journeys. Look at Acts 26 and 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. When he says in this connection, when he was still a persecutor of the church, that he had already gained letters that we saw back in Acts 9, 1 and 2, that he was going to find people, men and women, to arrest who were following Christ and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem, okay? In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. Look at 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone about me and those who journeyed with me. Now, we're within the last couple of chapters of Acts, and we've seen Paul give this testimony three different times. And sometimes he lifts up events that are more significant at one time for one audience and than he does in another. I mean, when we go back to 9-7, you said, he said that he's there with other companions and they stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And they fell to the ground. Now, you see in 22 and 9, he informs them that those who were with him did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to them. But in all three accounts, he recalls the same clear vision of hearing the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The only difference here, he says, it was in the Hebrew language. And then he gives us the greatest insight he has in the retelling of this testimony ever. Look at the next verse. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This is the only time that he does this out of the three times he tells his testimony. Well, pastor, what is a goad? A goad is a sharp pointed stick that was used to move animals in a particular direction. When you're trying to get your beast of burden to turn right or left, sometimes he would be angry and he would kick back his hooves and they would then be impaled with one of these goals. And that would change his mind on whether he needed to turn right or left. So Paul, or brother Jesus, gives Paul this illustration, this image of kicking against the goals that did he not recognize that 
God Almighty was directing him. And that the more he kicked against the goals, God will always win because God has the ability at any time to change your direction. Sometimes he changes your direction with a promise. Sometimes he changes your direction with pain. But the key is he will change your direction. And I think Paul wanted to also show Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and everyone who was there to trial the overwhelming power of Christ that drew him into this transformation and also to let them know that regardless of how hard you try to hinder me, how hard you try to assassinate me, how hard you try to continually to keep me in prison, you are kicking against the goals because I'm doing this as a witness for Christ and he will change your direction. He even showed that his own plan to exterminate the church of Jesus Christ made him because God changed his direction to be one of the greatest proponents of the church of Jesus Christ. That you cannot kick against the irresistible purposes of God. Are you still kicking? Are you still getting stuck? Have you not recognized that you cannot work against the irresistible purposes of God? Acts 26.15, Paul asked a simple question. And I said, who are you, Lord? Now remember, Lord can be uh, curious or it can be sir. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But then he tells him, get up, get on your feet, go into the city, and I will tell you what you are going to do next, that you are going to be a witness for me. This is so important. Do you understand that the word witness means what in Greek? A martyr. What does a martyr do? A martyr enters martyrdom, they die for the purpose that they're standing for. So he tells them up front, you will give your life for me to prove to others all the things you have seen me do and the things that I will show you. Paul did move swiftly and more effectively after this encounter. And he comes to this Understanding that the only way to fulfill his life is to fulfill his call as a witness. Look at Ezekiel 2, 1 through 3. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels. Just stop right there. I'm going to send you to do my work, and the people I'm sending you to are rebellious. 
They're not going to welcome you. They're not going to welcome the hearing of the good news that you proclaim. They're going to rebel against you. They're going to maybe even rise up against you. Look what happened in Quran. But look what he says. Son of man, I'm going to sing you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who have rebelled, a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. So they rebelled against me. This is God speaking. You know they're going to rebel against you. If you follow, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Look at Acts 26, 17 through 18. Delivering you from your people, he's speaking to Paul here, after, during his testimony, he's knocked him off his horse. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The only way to be sanctified is by faith in Jesus Christ, right? So he appears here before the risen Savior to be appointed as a servant and a witness to be uh, appointed as an instrument of his will to serve the Lord, to supply the needs of others, to meet the needs of others. This kind of service involves faithful, sacrificial ministry to believers and unbelievers, and it <clears throat> is provided in the face of opposition, the face of persecution, the face of disappointment. If you are a minister, and everyone under the sound of my voice who believes in Christ Jesus is a minister. Your role as a witness, which means martyr, is to share the distinct function and authority of those who saw the resurrected Christ and to follow it in all of its implications. Acts 13, 30-33. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God has promised to his fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as is also written in the second psalm. You are my son today, I have begotten you. Then as we look at Acts 26, 17, we see that there are some echoes of this passage all the way back in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah 1 and 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Because remember, Jesus says, I'm delivering you over to Jews and Gentiles so that you might be able to, you know, preach the gospel to them. 
And he says, don't be afraid. For I will deliver you, declares the Lord. Whatever you have to deal with, I will be there. Because I'm sending you to open their eyes so they are turned away from darkness to light. I'm sending you that they will see value in accepting my, accepting faith in me. Christ Jesus, their only way to salvation. Look at Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, when you don't get a response with that, do you understand that we must still be in the darkness? We must still be stumbling around. We must still be groping when God is so close. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This divine light is not a divine light that blinds, but a divine light that gives light to salvation for those who don't know him. Acts 20, 20 through 21, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to make sure they had spiritual enlightenment. He wanted to liberate them from Satan's dominion. He wanted them to recognize that this would require repentance, that they have to turn away from every other source of illumination. If you're getting your light from the wrong place, it will probably blind you and not give you greater vision. But he wants them to be able to turn away from this. In 19, he says these words, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is called a litotes. And it's when you take an affirmative statement, you make it an understatement and show its validity through a negative. What Paul is really saying here, let me state it this way. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was wholeheartedly obedient. That's what he's saying. He wants them to recognize that just like I was all in when I was serving zealously without knowledge, now with total knowledge, I'm just as zealous and that I am telling them that they have to repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. He understood what conversion was. Conversion is just not forgiveness through faith, but it's a transformation. Something that can be observed, something that can be measured, something that can be seen. 
Paul tells Agrippa, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Then he says in 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. The only reason I've gotten this far without being killed to be able to give my testimony to you, O King Agrippa, is that I've had one friend that sticks closer than a brother. I've only had the help of God who's allowed me and will help me fulfill his promise, his promise of rescue that he gave me earlier. And then, he, you know, when people want to challenge his teaching, he says, hey, Agrippa, I'm not, I'm not saying anything but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. First of all, Moses told them that the Messiah would suffer and secondly, that he would rise from the dead and he would bring a message of light to both Jew and Gentile. I'm just saying the same thing Moses said. Luke 24, 26 through 27. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then skip down to Luke 24, 45 through 48. Then he opened the minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Then lastly, we see Paul as he stands before Agrippa as God's servant, boldly persuading all to become Christians. I want you to listen closely to these last passages. I'm not going to go deep into them. I'm going to bring out three things that I think are incredibly important but I want to read them once again. Acts 26, 24 through 32. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now watch this. Watch the turn here. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for all this has not been done in a corner. Man, you got to get that. He says it's been what God has done has been presented to believer and unbeliever, to saint and skeptic. It hadn't been done in a corner. Everybody who has eyes to see has seen it. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then we see the king get up, the governor, Bernice, get up. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Three things I want to lift up briefly as we close out. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Festus is accusing Paul of allowing his intellect to override his integrity. But Paul quickly dismisses that claim because he says, I'm speaking the truth. And my words are rational. My words are based on not opinion, but only on the holy word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Oh yeah, you, you know, you might fool me, you might fool the elders, but you won't fool Jesus. You're not fooling the Holy Spirit. And to them, you got to give the greater account. And then, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa has a long and solid reputation as a pious Jew. Paul is absolutely sure of this assertion that he's making toward him. And he's challenging King Agrippa don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. And then lastly, and Agrippa said to Paul in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. Realizing that Paul is pressing here Agrippa for a Christian commitment, Agrippa tries to push him off with this statement, saying it's too short of a time to make a decision. 
And Paul is saying, whether the time is long or the time is short, it's the time. And you who believe should repent and then you should desire a right standing with God. If you've heard true and rational words about Jesus Christ, there should be a reaction. There should be a reply. There should be a realization. When the gospel is proclaimed, it requires an action, either affirmative or the alternative, which is negative. You should be a not just a hearer of the word, but a doer, because a hearer of the word is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then forgets what he's seen. Paul is saying to Agrippa, you believe the prophets, and I know you do. You're a faithful Jew, as I am, and now you have heard the gospel. What would ever keep you from accepting Jesus Christ? Because either you accept Jesus Christ or you accept the consequences that come with refusing Jesus Christ. Either you accept the tree of life or it doesn't matter to you if the tree of life dies. You know, a pig ate his fill of acorns that had fallen from his oak tree. And after he had eaten all the acorns that had fallen, he started to root around the tree. There's a crow in the tree, and he remarked to the pig, Hey, you shouldn't do that, because if you lay bare the roots of this tree, it will wither, and it will die, and it will fall over. The pig looks up to the crow and says, I could care less as long as I keep getting these acorns. You see, Agrippa realized or didn't realize that the tree was the Savior. And that if you got rid of the Savior, there was no salvation, just as a pig didn't realize if you kill the tree, there are no more acorns. We must either accept Christ Jesus and enjoy the fruit of the tree, or we must deny Christ Jesus and accept the consequences of a fruit that leads to death. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We thank you for all that you're doing in this minute and in this hour. Lord, we ask you to change lives by your word. To, Lord, let them no longer just root around the tree, but let them embrace the tree. Let them understand that you are the vine and we are the branches, and apart from you, we can do nothing. Bless us and keep us and encourage our hearts today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.